that's one of the big takeaways that I wish that every young person in their 20s would hear that you can change your life by just starting with small amounts, investing on a regular basis and really getting in control and in touch with your money from an early age. Well, hello, hello. So we are finally covering finances, which is the most heavily requested 101 from all you lovely beans. And we are joined by none other than Kate Campbell from How To Money Podcast and the Australian Finance Podcast, which is super exciting. So this is a very smooth introduction into finances for beginners and really everything you need to know starting from the absolute basics. So while we don't get into the nitty gritty of choosing the right funds or avoiding hidden fees, which will all be in part two. Instead, we're discussing important topics like emergency funds and the importance of investing, mindful and value-based spending, and even bringing in a live money calculator demo to show just how much money can come from investing. So one practical takeaway, which Kate suggests at the very end of the episode, but I think it's so important that I was just slotted in here, is... Yeah, I think if you have to do one thing right now is schedule a reoccurring calendar event in your whatever calendar you're using um, for one hour each week to look after your finances. Also, what you hear in this episode and part two are recommendations and suggestions. So your finances are very personal to your life. So it might actually help seeing a financial planner. But this is just a great way to start and then you can sort of work your way through. And as always, like other episodes, I will have my voice edit inserts throughout this episode. Uh, So just don't be surprised if my voice just pops up here and there. (laughs) So yeah, let's jump into it. at the end of the day, money is what makes the world go round. Even if we don't want our life to be about money, we don't want to think about money all the time. It's there in the background of everything that's going on. And if you sort of take control of that uh, narrative, you can really change the way that you live your life and you can change the way that your family lives their life and you can change your financial future. So I think it's really important, even if you don't like the topic of money, you don't want to think about investing in finance to at least be aware of what's going on behind the scenes there so you're involved in that process because it's going to happen whether you're involved or not things are going to happen with your money money's going to come in money's going to come out so it's better to actually um, at least understand a little bit of some of the processes there and how you can actually take better control because you need money for pretty much everything that's happening in your life even if we say we we just um, we don't want to be a finance person Um, I think it's still really important to at least understand some of the basics and get started, which is why it's going to be really exciting to have this conversation today. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, the idea of being in control of our lives because Mm -hmm. finance is such a big part. And if, if we're not conscious or aware of what our choices are, how to make good choices, Mm. it just catches up to us in the end. And I've heard that from a lot of people where they just say, do it early on, Get nip it in the bud and then yeah. afterwards you'll be able to at least choose whether or not to do this instead of having to to basically suffer what your bad choices were at the start. And mm. there is a common money misconception. I remember hearing this in one of your podcast episodes, which is the common, I'm not good at finances, I'm not good at money, I don't know how to do money, all of those things. What do you have to say in response to that? Yeah, I think that's probably one of the biggest misconceptions because after interviewing many people on the How To Money podcast and working in the finance industry, it's it's such a niche area. There's so many different roles and a lot of people in the finance industry wouldn't know the next thing about managing their own superannuation or investing. So even if you have a commerce degree from one of the best universities and you work in an investment firm, you don't necessarily know how to manage your finances and make good money decisions. So it's really, it just comes down to you having a willingness to learn, to try to make some mistakes and sort of improve on them and make decisions. It's nothing to do with having a family history, although that helps because you're used to having those conversations about money. You don't need to have a finance degree. You don't need to work in the field. You just have to be willing to learn. And I guess it's that self-directed process where you actually have to make a decision. I want to take control of my money. I'm going to start making the decision to spend an hour every weekend 
learning some of the basics so I can take control. And I think it, it, it doesn't have to be much harder than that. I, it can be, the media can make it seem so complicated, but at the end of the day, if you make a few decisions right along the way, you don't have to really worry about that. Most of the stuff that's happening in financial media um, and all the complicated investment products, that's kind of like the cherry on top for people that want to go the extra mile or want to make it more complicated than it is. There's a lot of really complicated investment products and options out there that are just, they're not really any better than the basic exchange traded funds, which we'll talk about, I think, in uh, later in the episode. But it, yeah. Oh, for sure. And I, when you said that, I just remember uh, on, the, on the news, they would have weather mm. and it would be great. You just see, oh, Victoria's sunny. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then as soon as that, they cross over to stocks and I would, my mind would dissociate. I wouldn't, you know, I saw this person, yeah. Danny pointing at some numbers with the, mm. the green arrow up and the red arrow down. And I just thought, nah, nah, not for me, which still, cause we're going to go into the different investments. As you mm. said, that's a very extra step for people who already are in finances and want to supplement that but there are a lot of more easier ways to get into finances so first up there's so many things and we can get really overwhelmed especially if we're mm -hmm. just beginning we're just starting there's so many things to focus on so what would you recommend a beginner to really focus on their finances um, one aspect of it to start off with yeah i think the first step if you haven't even thought about money it's just been a paycheck comes in you spend money on groceries and rent and you haven't really thought about your current financial position the first step is just working out what you currently have so you're working out what's the income coming in each month what's your outgoing expenses um is that leaving you with less money or more money at the end of each month and also having a look at what are your current assets so maybe you have some cash in your bank account um maybe you have what an investment before maybe you've got a property so i followed up about this topic of assets and really what counts as an asset so i've added it in here so what counts as an asset because you did mention property though property is quite unlikely especially for people who are younger unless if mm. you're you know doing something <laughs> doing something good <laughs> but um what counts as an asset does my laptop count as an asset does my phone what counts yeah, well, I, I don't have a property yet, sadly, but uh, maybe one day we can dream. Um, I think when you're looking at assets, um, things that go down in value as soon as you walk out the door uh, are probably not things that I'll count as assets. I mean, maybe you put them down for insurance if you have like a household insurance, but I mean, I probably wouldn't be counting my laptop and my phone there, though you may want to, because at the end of the day, that's something you could liquidate. So the fancy word liquidate literally just means to turn an asset into cash, which means basically to sell something. So sell your car, which is an asset, and turn it into money. At the end of the day, that's something you could liquidate, but most people can't really sell their laptop or phone even in emergency because they actually need those items. So I'd be looking at things that would be easy, that hold a value are easy to sell if you want to count some of your items, like a car. Maybe you can go well, my car's maybe worth 5,000 on resale. I could count that as an asset. And if you have some superannuation, which I think we're going to talk about later as oh, well, yeah. mm -hmm. that's your money as well. So that is an asset, even though you have a little bit less sort of direction on where that money goes at this stage. Okay, so that's a spiel about assets. To summarise, generally they are properties or cash in the bank, superannuation or expensive things that you can sell and get money from. Not so much essential items like phones, though you can count it if you want. So now onto liabilities. So working out that and then working out any liabilities. So I think the main things there would be credit card, personal loans, if you've got any buy now, pay later debt, maybe you've got a mortgage. So working out where you currently sit financially, I think that's a really important starting point before you go into um, paying off debt or getting your emergency fund, just knowing where you sit currently. Um, because that gives you sort of a position to go off. Like if you don't know if you have debt or how much debt you have, then it's very hard to formulate a plan. So I think it's really important to yeah just start off with get a piece of paper, write down what's coming in each month, what's going out each month. I mean, a lot of the banks have budgeting or cash flow tools that'll tell you and summarize this information. So for example, Money Smart has a budgeting tool. So that's on moneysmart.gov.au slash budgeting. And it's really useful. I've, I've used it myself and it is real handy. 
Uh, and they have other tools as well, which we actually will use one of them later in the episode, which is the compound interest one. So if you stick around, there will be a live demo on that. I guess if, if you're a uni student right now, you might have just some cash in the bank. Maybe you've got a buy now, pay later debt or a credit card. So what's in the bank minus what debt? Maybe that's a negative number. Maybe it's a positive number, but at least you know what your starting point is. And then um, you can also work out your income each month minus your expenses each month. And you can work out maybe if you've got some extra money to save each month or if your expenses, so your rent and uh, all your bills, if that's greater than the amount of income coming in each month, then you've kind of got a problem there. So that's probably a good thing to be aware of to at least start from because in this case, you're either going to have to increase your income or decrease your expenses. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to move forward financially. In terms of paying off debt, there is one exception, though, which is the HEX or HELP debt, as Kate says here. Most debts, really. I think HEX is probably the, the school, um, is probably the one exception there. So this is just because unlike other loans which have interest, which is extra money you have to pay on top of the loan, HELP or HEX debts don't actually have that. So if you really want to pay off your HELP or HEX debt, you can, but you're really not in trouble if you don't. So say if our spending is less, so our debt is less than our income, we're on a positive in our income. Yeah. What happens then? Yeah. So if you've got more income coming each month than the money you're spending, then you've kind of got this surplus where you can actually start moving forward financially. And so maybe you have a goal that you want to save um, for a new bike or well, you, usually the, the goal everyone wants to save for right. is a travel that would totally be me, though, a new bike. That would be me. <laughs> yeah, but no one's going anywhere at the moment, so I'm just trying to think of something a bit more realistic. <laughs> um, yeah, but I guess the main first step, if you do have more coming in each month than you're spending, is to think about setting up an emergency fund. Um, and some people call it uh, colloquially the F-off fund. It means <laughs> that you've got sort of, even if it's one to two months, usually sort of experts say three to six months of living your basic living expenses put aside in a separate bank account so that if anything happens you've got the money if you lose your job like a lot of people did last year you've got enough to keep you going for the next three to six months without having to go into debt um, and it gives you a bit of room to um, work things through and work out what you're going to do next and this emergency fund is also something you've you're going to have if for some reason something happens to a family member and you need to buy uh, an emergency flight Whereas um, usually if you don't have that money put aside, you're going to have to use some other form of credit. Maybe you'll end up putting that flight on a credit card and then you won't be able to, it'll take you a while to pay it off. So having that emergency fund, um, and that's probably the first thing, once you have paid off any of those consumer debts, I'd be focusing on um, and putting, I mean, if you're a uni student right now and you're quite good at living uh, living on a low cost sort of lifestyle, um, you might not even... Yeah. Yeah. If you're in a share house, you're on two minute noodles, you might be able to put even, um, it might be a much easier for you to save your emergency fund than if you're a family with multiple kids when your emergency fund of three to six months uh, of expenses could be like, multiple tens of thousands of dollars. Mm. But right. yeah, pick a number that sounds reasonable to you. Well, um, what is a reasonable number? So for say a student, uh, early twenties, how much should we be saving up? Because you did say a three to six month period just in case. Yeah. So I guess working out in the step before you've worked out what your expenses are each month um, and then work out what are those expenses are essential to me living. So I need to pay for my rent. I need to pay for my bills. That's non-negotiable. I need at least $200 a month for food. Um, and, and what are those? You probably can, if you lose your job, you can probably avoid buying any new sort of gadgets or electronics. So you're just thinking, what's the bare basics budget I need to survive each month? Mm -hmm. If something happened and I lost my job, if I was unwell, or if I needed to um, go and look after a family member. So it's, yeah, just working out what's that. Maybe it's $1,000 each month. So you think I need at least three or $4,000 in my emergency fund um, to feel financially comfortable. Because if there's ever an emergency or something happens, I can dip into that. Uh, instead of having to go into debt. Mm, yeah, I, uh, that really makes a lot of sense in terms of tracking what 
like from the time that you were looking at your income versus your debt and everything, yeah. already tracking the expenses and seeing, I guess, an average of the, the yeah. costs per that. So I guess that would already do the work for you. Yeah, I mean, if you're on a variable, um, like as a uni student, you've probably got different amounts of income coming in each month and your expenses might really sort of ebb and flow depending if it's during the uni year. So yeah, just working out what's the average amount you spend each month over the last few months um, and going from there, I think is a good way to start. Okay. So now that we've got our emergency fund sorted, it's just a account in our bank that we won't touch unless if there is something really pressing and not for buying a bike. <laughs> so we no. leave that aside. And so now we know at least we're financially secure in that aspect. What yeah. can we do if we still got surplus? What do we do if we still have a, you know, a positive net income coming in? Yeah. So once you've got that emergency fund sorted out, I think that's really like base level of financial control because you know that you can say no to a bad situation and you're going to be okay uh, for a while if something happens. So once you've got that, I think that builds a lot of financial confidence to get started. And I think the next step would be working out if you've got some savings goals in mind. Um, maybe you've got the bike in mind or you're saving up for a house deposit or you're saving up to buy a car. Um, usually identifying those goals and what are they are, what they are, and what's your priority right now, because it is hard to work towards too many different financial goals. Um, usually I try and break my goals and down into what's my short term. So something I want to achieve in the next year, uh, what's my medium term financial goal, maybe three to five years. And what's my long term, which is more thinking about retirement and families and future sort of stuff like that. So I would yeah, write down all the things you want to save for or you want to do financially um, and then working out what's your priority goal in each of those areas. And you can work out a different plan to approach each of them. So if the if you want to buy a bike in the next six months, um, working out how much that costs and then dividing that up over the months you want to work towards it and going, is that possible? Um, do I want to earn some extra money? Um, and then maybe setting up a separate bank account just for that specific goal. Um, maybe you need a thousand dollars. I'm not really sure what a bike goes for at the moment. Um, but yeah. And then even automating it. So once money hits your bank account um, each month, maybe a hundred dollars automatically goes from your pay account to your bike account. Um, and then hopefully at the end of the, I don't know, 10 months there, if it's a thousand dollar bike, mm -hmm. you've got enough to buy that bike. And I mean, you've got, the knowledge that you saved up, you did all the hard work for it and you're not sort of buying it before you have the cash available. And I think that's really important, that delayed gratification aspect, because we're so used to having everything now when we want on demand. I think Netflix has really changed the way we um, perceive everything, having all these services. Um, I mean, the thought of having to save 10 months for something you want right now uh, might be kind of crazy. Um, but I guess if you want it, even sooner maybe you could get a second hand of this item or a cheaper version so i guess weighing up i really for a consumable item like a bike i really wouldn't want to be getting credit card debt or buy now pay later debt i don't think that's the best way to go about it i don't think it teaches us these really important financial habits of saving and working towards something and it really it's a different sense of satisfaction when you've saved for something for a period of time and you know that you bought that with your hard work mm -hmm. oh yeah and then you can show it off and say look how much i saved for this bad boy <laughs> yeah a beautiful e-bike but in terms of that saving versus spending now this is a mm. whole nother topic of <laughs> it is hard to save especially when we feel the need to spend and yeah. i remember seeing uh, listening to another episode of yours about spending and why we spend and you categorized it into four things which was the need want emotion environment or that was your guest as well but do you mind just elaborating on that yeah I think everything in society is telling us to spend every time we walk down the street there's things that are saying spend 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 I mean the fact that our iPhones after three years start to get all slow and they're pushing us to buy the next thing and the next gadget every I mean I think Netflix is almost good in that part as we don't see the ads anymore so I think that could be one benefit yeah. but if you end up subscribing to lots of different mailing lists you're probably getting all these 
different um, sort of these things coming into your mind every day, like, oh, I can get 25% off this. And you're just, your brain just keeps thinking, spend, buy, buy more. Um, and it can be really hard to break out of that. When I, a few years ago, was working out what my triggers were, because when I grew up in the country, I mean, one, I didn't have any money because I was a kid, but I also yeah. wasn't thinking about spending all the time, even when I was in high school. Um, and I realized one of the things was moving closer to the city and spending more time walking around the CBD in Melbourne. That was actually increasing my consumeristic desires because I'd walk past all these shops and see signs and I just wander in going, Oh, I'll just have a look while I'm waiting for someone. And it was actually sort of changing my mindset of like, I actually want to buy things. I want to spend more money. Whereas when I was in the country living on a farm, I never had any of those thoughts. Um, so I think marketing, like even in finance is designed to make you feel like you need something. Every single thing you see online is designed to make you feel something, which is designed to trigger some sort of emotion for you to, buy or think about purchasing. So if you can identify that maybe that's the issue for you, if it's impulse buying, if it's um, maybe for you, it's like trying to keep up with the person next door because you see all your friends doing this, you want to do it too. Um, yeah, working out what the trigger is for you uh, for spending. So maybe you walk past all these designer stores and you think, oh, I'd like that. But you know that you're never actually going to buy it. So that's not too much of a sort of worry. But then you go, oh, I walk past this other store all the time and I'm always tempted to go in and spend money that I just wasn't planning to this month or it's not part of my financial plan. So once you've worked out your trigger, working out ways to add some friction to that process. So when it comes to saving, I think it's really important to make, automate as much as possible so there's no friction. But when it comes to spending, add some friction there. So whether that's disabling all your Apple Pay and PayPal checkouts, whether that's using cash. I know some people have had great success using some sort of cash envelope system where they go, I've got $200 for my own spending each month and I'm just going to take that out of the ATM and put it in my wallet and that's it. I can't spend any more. Yeah. Or they'll have one specific card for spending that's separated from their main savings account. So I think that's one of the dangers is when you use one bank and you've got your emergency fund and your savings linked to an account with a transaction card. So that's one of the, so when you're having a night out, you go, oh, I've already spent my $100 I allocated for tonight, but I'm having so much fun. I'm just going to transfer another $200 across. And because it's the same bank, it happens instantly. And so, yeah, if that's something you can do to separate it, um, maybe some people I know put like a, a sticker on their credit card saying like you, you're not spending more than $200 each month or do not use or, or they'll put a picture of their goal on the card or just some sort of visible reminder to add some friction to that process. So it makes it harder to go from desire to purchase mm -hmm. within a few minutes. Right. Um, it's really good to separate that process out. So if you go, I really want that new outfit or whatever it is, you have to add some sort of gap between when you purchase it. So mm. if you go, I want this $500 thing, then you go, hey, I'm going to see if I still want it in 30 days. Or I go, well, if I want it, I'm going to have to save for it. I'm going to have to start putting aside some money for this item. And maybe in the time you save for it in three months, you go, I don't actually want that item or there's something better now. That's not the good thing anymore. So I think, yeah, just delaying that time to purchase. A lot of time those impulses sort of die off, especially if they're driven by emotion because you're shopping because you're bored or upset mm -hmm. uh, or angry or just like waiting for a friend. I mean, for I've sure. done uh, <laughs> I've done angry shopping before. It's never oh. really a good time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. It's, it's good not to shop with too much emotion involved. I've de definitely done the, oh, I've been here for ages. I might as well shop. Or um, yeah. if I come in thinking, especially those Boxing Day or whatever, I have the mindset already coming in that I'm going to buy something. That's already yeah. dangerous, especially when I'm like, oh, I've spent so much time here. That I've you know, put a lot of effort mm. in. I might as well buy something. The, the idea of friction as well, I find interesting because that's just how we would build a good habit. It's if we want to eat less, we would keep or eat less unhealthy food. We would 
not have it in our kitchen. We wouldn't have mm. a jar of cookies sitting on the table. We would have it hidden or up on the shelf or something. And that's the same as what you're talking about, keeping our finances yeah. in a way that it's harder for us to actually access it. But I did want to also talk about that. What we're talking about here is about unnecessary purchases. It's not about things that maybe you actually want it. Maybe you viscerally want it and you know you want it. Yeah. And that delayed gratification, you know, would only make you sadder by not having mm. it. And there was something amazing I heard through Ramit Sethi or Sethi, the finance guy in America. Yeah, I love him. He's great. He's great. He talks about in one of the podcast episodes, I think with Jordan Harbinger. So I tracked this episode down and it is on Jordan Harbinger's podcast, episode 199 about the money dial and about mm. getting our priorities straight with actually what will add value to our lives and what won't. So I know for a fact, a new uh, dress for me won't add that value, but for someone else, it might make their whole year because they love mm. it. They love fashion. They, they value that. For me though, if you, if I got an e-bike, that would make my life. <laughs> I would be so happy but for someone else, they would, it would be a nice accessory, but they would never use it. Um, so getting mm. in control of what we actually even value. Yeah. And I think that so often if we're just in that spending, saving, spending, earning cycle, we never actually think about what part of the spending actually makes us happy. And I think that's like, of course, you're going to have to pay something to keep a roof, roof over your head and you're going to have to pay something yeah. to the water and the gas and the electricity company. But when it comes to all those other things that are more on that want side of things, actually looking through what have you spent over the last six months and what have those expenses actually brought some additional happiness to your life? Um, even as simple as like printing out your card, transaction card statement and like putting a tick if you remember what it is yeah. and if it actually you go, hey, three months later, I still think that lunch I had with my friend on the river was amazing experience and that made me really happy. But then this $100 I spent um, on some random stuff at that shop when I was bored, I don't even remember what I bought or didn't really make me add that much value to my life. So even, yeah, just getting a, printing out three months of statements or just going online and just like putting a pen and like ticking or crossing what parts of that actually added value to your life is a good way to sort of focus on the money dial concept where you can increase your spending in the areas that bring you joy and then decrease the spending and things that hmm, I don't really care about clothes. So why am I spending money on clothes? Mm -hmm. Whereas I love, I love going out for really nice lunches with my friends. So I'm going to spend less on all these other things that I don't really want clothes. I don't, I don't really want to do this, do this, do this too much, but I'm still spending money on it. So let's cut that out or really decrease it. And let's just turn up the dial and spend much more on going out for, with friends and enjoying it and then do that guilt-free. And I think that's really, you might just, you're spending the same amount of money in the end, but you're just reallocating those funds into something that's going to bring a lot more happiness to your life. And then you can have that guilt-free spending, um, but you're actually really enjoying it. And you look back in the month and go, hey, I still saved, I still worked towards my goals, but I had a great time and I didn't end up with purchases that I didn't need. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and something I've heard was good or fulfilling purchases are those that actually re reduce an inconvenience in our lives as opposed to adding a supposed value. So mm -hmm. uh, for example, it also goes down, say clothes. If I buy a piece of clothing that actually I really wish that I had in my wardrobe. So right now, and this is literally right now, <laughs> I have, I, I want a black uh, jumper. And I was thinking if I bought that black jumper, that would add value because I'm actually mm. in need of it or it's reducing the, oh God, they phrased it a lot better. I think it was another Ramit Sethi thing where <laughs> it is reducing a lack of something in our lives, meaning yeah. that I lack a black jumper and therefore if I bought it it would replace that lack whereas mm. and this happens a lot with people I've talked about uh, especially with formal or high school graduation dresses <laughs> it's something that you didn't even lack it's not something that you really needed 
only for that particular occasion. Mm. So the fact that you have it now sitting in your wardrobe five years later (laughs) just signals the fact that it wasn't really replacing a consistent lack. It was only, Mm. yeah. So that was also something that just blew my mind when I, when I heard of it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people with forever new dresses just oh, sitting in the back geez. of their wardrobe. Oh, yeah. But there's so many amazing companies now that you can actually just, you can rent these items, yeah. these really uh-huh. expensive, beautiful items of clothing. And you can do that with bags. You can do that with appliances. Mm-hmm. Like it's a good try before you buy, especially if you only think you're going to use something once. Um, and I guess that's another way to think about items when you purchase them is how many times do you think you're going to be able to use this and actually dividing Um, the purchase price by the amount of time. So if you think you're going to be able to wear that jumper maybe 50 times in the next year or two before you uh, spill some yogurt on it and ruin it for good, (laughs) Um, yeah, going, well, $100 divided by 50, well, what's that? Is that worth it to me per use? Um, And thinking about things that way. And I think that's quite good for expensive items, especially if you just jumping on the latest hobby. I mean, I think everyone's probably guilty of getting really into a hobby, uh, buying all the equipment, buying all the stuff too soon, and then going after three months, hey, I don't actually like this hobby too much and moved on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the ways I've personally done to stop myself going all in uh, and buying all this stuff for a hobby is I started doing Taekwondo over oh. Zoom last year and I told myself I was only allowed to get equipment until I passed each level of taekwondo so when i got a new belt i could buy one more piece of taekwondo gear um so the first step was buying the mats for the living room but i personally know myself that i i love just buying all the gear straight away for any hobby i go into i'll end up with all the books i'll do a course i'll just go all in um and then i know i get bored of things really quickly so now knowing myself knowing what my triggers are i'm trying to give myself move it more to that reward model so I pass a level I get a new piece of gear and I'm proving to myself that I keep wanting to do this hobby Um, and then if I stop wanting to do it well I haven't bought the whole whole store out so Mm -hmm. I think that's one potential way to do it um, splitting up those things and not just sort of getting everything at once yeah and just being entirely conscious again of how you're spending making sure that you actually want it instead of just jumping the gun which <laughs> guilty <laughs> all yeah. the time it just you want it now you want to get i think what our mind does is just goes zero or a hundred a hundred and yeah. then we just go out for it yeah delayed gratification's hard yeah, it is really <laughs> hard we we don't live long enough i think our ancestors it makes sense our ancestors died at 30 or whatever so we got a <laughs> yeah. milestone to meet but in terms of now shifting gears to investing shifting gears to the we've got a surplus but also it's a very necessary thing of investing where we mm. I think we overlook it way too much and I overlooked it also because I had the misconception that I wasn't a money person that I wasn't a finance person yeah. but for people just confused about investing, what do you really hope that they know from it getting in and what are they missing out on again if they don't proceed with investing? I think the first thing to think about is whether you want to be just a consumer of the economy, like we're talking about just spending uh, and pumping money in, or you want to be an owner of the economy. So as, as an investor, I mean, it doesn't even take much now to actually own a piece of the companies in our country and across the globe. And I think that's a really exciting thing to think about, that you can actually be an owner in our economy uh, and you can be a part of it and you can benefit from it. You don't have to just be a consumer. Everyone is an investor. At the end of the day, everyone in Australia, I'd say 99% of people will end up with superannuation at some point in their life, which is um, the compulsory government scheme where employers have to put at least 9.5% of your salary, though there's some debate if that's going to increase, um, away into a special account that you can't touch until retirement. Uh, And for most people, that money is invested in Australian and global companies, as well as other things. So for most people, you may already be an investor. And I think a lot of uni students um, will probably have been paid super at some point through their part-time jobs. Um, if they are working at a place for a while. 
So, yep, that super account from your first job that you have totally neglected and don't know the name of is hopefully investing your money to grow. And in a second, we'll introduce just how much money you'd make via a live demo calculator. And then in part two of this Finance 101, we'll talk about the problems with hidden fees within superannuation or the shoddy investments that they get you by default. So that's in part two, but for now, all you need to know is that super accounts are actually there to invest your money. I remember last time we talked, uh, what people overlook is the fact that by investing today, you will have an absurd number in the future. Yeah, focusing on it, like in your early 20s, you have the opportunity now to change your life completely over the next few decades. Um, And a lot of people, maybe they'll never hear about investing or they'll hear about and go, hey, let's put that in the true hard basket. I'm going to do it when I'm a proper Mm -hmm. adult in my 30s. Um, And making that decision just makes it so much harder to catch up. Um, Like it's still possible to build wealth in your 30s and 40s and 50s, but it just makes everything harder. Um, everything you have to contribute more, it takes longer, it requires a lot more work. Whereas if you start with a simple plan in your 20s, you can really change your future. And I think that's a really, that's one of the big takeaways that I wish that every young person in their 20s would hear that you can change your life by just starting with small amounts, investing on a regular basis, and really getting in control and in touch with your money from an early age. And it's actually not that scary. That's probably one of the biggest misconceptions I'd like to talk about is the industry makes it seem all over the place. It makes it seem pretty extreme. Every media title, oh, like $5 trillion was lost on the market today. Um, Even if if it's like a tiny percentage move in the market, like they just take everything out of proportion and write big headlines because that's what sells the media. Um, But if you take the media out of it and you just sort of get back to basics of going, do I want to invest? Um, Just even thinking about some Australian companies that you know, maybe you thought about um, what's on Woolworths or CBA or BHP or just think about any companies you like or in the US, maybe you've used Disney products before, you've used Netflix, you've used Facebook, Google. Um, And that's probably one of the sort of the easiest ways to think about it originally is you're just buying pieces of a business. Um, It's not some scary, crazy thing. You're actually becoming an owner in a business in a very small way, but you are. And that's the amazing thing is now that you can invest in US companies and all over the world and you can be part of the economy. And I think that's, it's really exciting. Mm. And this is something we'll go into more detail in the second part, but The idea of ETFs and the idea that you don't have to commit to say, yeah, uh, Woolworths, you don't have to commit to that one company if you feel like that's too risky, if they suddenly crash um, and and you're just thinking, oh no, I've lost all my money here. ETFs is actually, Kate, can you explain what it is? (laughs) Yeah. So an exchange traded fund is really just a fancy term for saying a shopping basket filled of companies where you get a piece of a lot of different companies instead of having to make a decision. So um, I guess the most easy example to think about is the top 200 Australian companies that are listed on the stock exchange. Instead of having to pick which one you want, you can buy units in an exchange traded fund and they will actually go out and buy shares in all of those top 200 companies. So by you making one purchase in an exchange traded fund and there's quite a few available so I'm sure we can provide some resources to have a look at some of the different ones Um, but you can make a decision and you can purchase one of units in one of these exchange traded funds and underneath that there'll be units in Coles and CBA and Telstra and all these top 200 Australian businesses so you don't actually have to make that decision which is what a lot of people when you see that they've lost all their money It's usually because they've invested only in one specific company or one specific fund manager and they haven't diversified. But with exchange traded funds, you get exposure to, um, I mean, you can pick any basket you want, but thinking about the top 200 Australian companies is probably the easiest way to start. Um, You buying units in this, you get exposure to the performance and the growth 
of all of those companies underneath it. So you don't have to make that decision and you really get to benefit from being an owner in the economy. So ETFs might actually be something you're interested in. So it's not about putting all eggs into one basket, i.e. one stock, but a range of multiple stocks. So we'll step you through the different types of ETFs and how you can actually invest in one in part two of this Finance 101. Yeah, and I've heard so many people say, the best time to invest was yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> the next, next time to invest is today, which, mm. yeah, especially for beginners, it can feel quite rushed. It can feel quite daunting. And for me, I researched so much just to buy mm. one, one share. And so much research went into it because I was so scared of the fact that, you know, I would lose money and all the risk that would mm. happen with it. But it's true. Just getting a foot in the door and just trying it out makes it a lot less daunting. And to just remind us that it's very achievable and also the rewards and the gains that you'll get over time. Cause time is our best, our best yeah. friend. It's the thing that helps the money grow instead of us having to actively make more income and make more that it just grows for us, which I find very nice of money. Thank you money for doing that. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's amazing what happens if you just sort of set up something and you work towards it over a really long time and you don't touch it. And that's what most people get wrong when they're investing is that they're watching what's happening in the markets every day. They're looking at the charts on TV every night. They're reading every headline. They're getting so emotionally involved with the process that they're changing their mind on their strategy on a very regular basis. They're selling things. They're buying things. They're they don't really have that advantage of time because they just keep making changes. So um, the they don't get to take advantage of sort of that compound interest effect that I'm sure we'll talk about later um, as much. Where just like having a look at that compound interest calculator on the Money Smart website uh, is a is a game changer for a lot of people. So that's the Money Smart website which you can play around on. Uh, they have heaps of calculators and you can just insert values here and there. So that's actually what we're doing right now. And we're just mocking up a superannuation account with a deposit of $3,000. If you're on the video version, I actually do have the screen up of this calculator. So here we go. So what I'm on right now, I've just put in the, so they have your strategy and they say initial mm -hmm. deposit. So I've just put in 3000 mm -hmm. and without even putting a regular deposit in it, just by the fact that it has an annual interest rate of 5%, I end up making 4,941. So I've made nearly $2,000 just by having it in a place where money can grow without even putting extra money into it. How many years is that over? 10 years. Mm. Yeah. So you've got capital growth compounding there as well as maybe some income being reinvested as well. Mm. If we were to mimic a superannuation though, the thing that everyone has, um, let's say you have $3,000 in your super account right now. How often does the employer put money into your super? Yeah, generally it's on a monthly basis. So I believe some small businesses, like smaller businesses can do it on a quarterly, but let's do monthly. So let's say, yes, it's a monthly deposit. How much money would they deposit on an, on an average, you know, for a 20-year-old who's working, say, part-time hours? What, what might a 20-year-old be? Only like $20,000 a year? Okay, yeah. 9.5%, what, that's 1,900. We'll divide that by 12. So like maybe say $160 is getting put into their superannuation each month. Okay. That was impressive maths, Kate. I, I've I got don't... a calculator here. Oh! <laughs> I was going to say, when I have to do maths under pressure, my, it's some, something in my brain just concaves in. I think I lose a bit of brain cells. Okay. Yeah, they told us we'd never have calculators around us in the real world. And look <laughs> here at we us. are. Yeah. Calculators at any instant. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. So, initial deposit 3000 We have that in our bank. Oh, no. We yep. have that in our super. In your super fund? Yes. And then we have a regular deposit, a regular monthly deposit of 160 Yep. And Over, then, let's say, 40 years. Okay. 40 years. Let's do this. What is the interest rate usually? Um, for a growth to high growth fund, a lot of time people will put in about 7% um, per annum returns. And, oh, I love the bar again. It just very nice exponential <laughs> curve. 
So what ends? Oh, okay. That's a lot of money. We started now off with feeling three. Wealthy? Yeah, yeah. Oh, a little bit <laughs> about this make believe money. <laughs> so three thousand dollars, and we would make a deposit, a regular deposit over forty years of seventy-seven thousand dollars. In the end, though, we make an extra nearly four hundred thousand dollars just by having that sit in this fund that returns seven percent each year. So in total. Yeah we will have nearly 500,000 from an initial 3,000. Yeah, and that's not including the fact that you're probably going to earn over $20,000 at some point in your career. Well, I hope so. Um, and you may make extra contributions um, because you are allowed to add extra money to superannuation. Um, yeah, so between extra contributions, between your salary increasing from $20,000 over your career, like yeah. it's going to be a much bigger number than that. And I, I guess that's just one way just playing with some of these scenarios on the calculator is one way to sort of get in your head that only you don't have to make drastic changes to build wealth over a long period of time, but most people aren't prepared to think long-term. It's, I mean, it's very hard. I, so much of stuff's just happening like now, there's lots of changes. It's very hard, even especially in coronavirus to think, mm. oh, I'm going to be old one day eventually. <laughs> yeah. um, if but, I make it. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the likelihood is that we are going to all get old. We are going to get to that age. I mean, the um, life expectancy in Australia is only going up for people. So um, I guess thinking to yourself, hey, if I just make a few changes or if I just make sure I know where my super is going, if it's in a fund that's right for me um, and I've made sure it's a low fee fund, like you can actually really just making a few decisions right now that are going to be good for you over the long term can, yeah, can set you up. I mean, considering you're probably going to get over 20 grand throughout your working life, you're yeah. well and truly probably going to have over a million dollars in your superannuation by the time you can touch it at, um, I don't know what age you're up to, 70 or 75. Mm -hmm. They they keep changing it. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's a good thing to think about that you don't have to make too many decisions right now, but if you make a few good ones, you can completely look after yourself when you're older. Um, and I, I think that's really cool to look at and that calculator does change a lot of people's views on investing that it's not actually they don't have to put in crazy amounts each month and it's not that hard so i hope you enjoyed part one of this finance 101 and now we're wrapping up with a rapid fire just to wrap up a few rapid fire questions oh yeah a few rapid fires so what do you wish you did earlier in your finance journey that you would recommend to other people I think not spending everything I earned straight away. Um, I mean, a lot of that's a lot of the things I did are probably easy to sort of look back and go, hey, that was actually a good thing. But um, at least putting some money aside to have an emergency fund, I would definitely do that if I went back now. Okay. And what's the what's a very common piece of advice that you've interviewed so many people, but there must be a trend that you're seeing no matter whether they're in this aspect of finance or that, is there something that they all share in common with the advice that they give you and your audience? Yeah, I think you've already, you've already said it on this episode, but everybody says start early. Okay. Um, start small, start regularly, but start early and don't be afraid to give it a shot. Make the mistakes early on while you're young, while you're only investing a small amount of money so you don't make the mistakes when you're playing with like $100,000 when you're 40 and that's going to mean a lot more if you get it wrong. Yeah, mm, make the sure. mistakes early and learn from them. Right. And and even if someone who's, say, 35, 40 listening to this perhaps, the the thing that we mentioned earlier as well, the best time to invest was yesterday, but then the best next time to invest is today. So even if you you are a little bit older, it's still better to still start instead of yeah saying oh i'm not Sorry. young i'm not young anymore therefore it's not for me but yeah yeah putting it in the too hard basket for another few decades is the worst thing you can do so mm. just go i'm going to spend an hour each week looking after my financial future even if it's an hour each month doing something making some positive decisions for your financial future is so important mm -hmm. and resources just for very very beginner people who are trying to step into finance so i think money smart would be one of them yeah uh, do you have any other or also how to money 
but also <laughs> other podcasts, other books, other blogs. Um, Mr. Money Mustache, I remember you mentioning to me as well. Yeah, that's probably once people know some of the basics, but it is it's quite good to learn about that idea of compound interest and how much of an effect it can have over your lifetime. Um, even at I do some work for a company called Rask Education and we have heaps of free online courses, no sales pitch at all um, on exchange traded funds and shares. What are the, all the basics there? So if you're looking for some audio visual content, that's a good tool. Um, in terms of some other Australian podcasts, because it's good to get your knowledge from multiple different sources, because everyone always has implicit bias. Some people might not know different things. It's good to learn from different people. Um, the Australian finance podcast, I've got How To Money. There's some guys doing My Millennial Money. There's um, Financial Autonomy. If you're looking for more investing, there's Equity Mates. I mean, there's lots of different choices once you just go to um, Spotify or Apple and look at the business or investing charts. So Kate has actually kindly created a document of all the resources. So I'm going to add it into the show notes where you can access it. And because when people listen to podcasts, and I'm very guilty of this, I listen to it and I get inspired and then I go, meh. <laughs> and then I listen to true crime and I forget about it. So yeah. in this instance, what is the next step? So challenging whoever's listening right now, what is the next tangible step from listening to this podcast to do in the very, very near future, if not right after they listen to this podcast? Yeah, I think if you have to do one thing right now is schedule a reoccurring calendar event in your whatever calendar you're using um, for one hour each week to look after your finances uh, and call it something like uh, future me will thank me for this or something like that. But just <laughs> Is that what you do, it, Kate? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think about it more than one hour. Okay. <laughs> it's like yeah. all day or weekend yeah. um, just because I work in the industry, not because I'm super, super crazy, <laughs> probably am a little bit. But yeah. yeah, just schedule in some financial me time. Take yourself um, out for a coffee and learn one thing. Listen to one podcast. Uh, and try and take small actions on a regular basis because they do add up over time. Um, if you try and do every, if you just decide I'm going to this weekend learn everything about finance, it's going to be too overwhelming um, and you'll, it'll get so hard that you end up making no decisions, um, which is not what I want for you. I want you to just take it one step at a time, put an event in your calendar to look at, learn something about your finances each week. Like next week it might be compound interest and the week after that you might go, what is superannuation? Just like learn baby steps and then you can take better actions from learning these steps uh, rather than trying to do everything at once, which is not really achievable. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Next week is part two, where we're really diving into the practical side of things and really diving into superannuation and investing. So hopefully this was a good overview of what you can do with your finances and just to make you a little bit more aware about everything. See you next week. Thank you.